Hey everyone. Anyone watching Colbert? A few of us are watching Stephen Colbert, kind of the king of late night right now, if you're into that kind of thing. I remembered a quote by Colbert this week uh, who said, the church is a flawed institution for whom I still have hope. I love that combination, naming the flaw and the hope. And we're in a series here at the beginning of the year reminding ourselves of what is church, what's this for, uh, why church, and that's how we're, uh, we're starting this year in Ephesians. And the text, just to be very upfront, the text that we're looking, up, uh, looking at this morning, and you may not even keep track of such things, probably don't, but this will be the third time we look at this text in just over a year. Uh, so I hesitated. I was like, oh, really? Are we, are we doing this again? And we've done it partly because it's my favorite, uh, but also uh, because we were in a series called Prophetic Imagination a while back, and uh, we landed in this, this uh, text, and then we were in a series called Calling All Peacemakers, and we landed in this text. Now we're in Ephesians, and so we have to do it. Um, but this, this text feels like me, in, to me increasingly like the deep end of the pool, that every time we come to the edge of it, there's m- more here. And so my hope is that as we look into it, that some of us will this, this morning, in fact, peer into it. And, and maybe some of us, we, haven't, we didn't plan on this, but we might even just jump in, uh, all even without our suits, still clothed. And the metaphor is breaking down. You get the point. We, w- we want to get into this text. So uh, where have we been? If you're joining us or just to remind ourselves where have we been, We remind ourselves of this old word, gospel, good news. The good news of Jesus isn't a set of ideas or a belief system, but it's the grace of God being made known in human lives. Unmerited favor given away. And the church then is called to life together, which means living as a people who are first being changed by grace, this primary relationship, which is all by grace, starts to then reorder every other relationship to also be by and for grace. And this is where church gets super beautiful and messy all at once. Because as we reminded uh, ourselves last week, the church uh, is to display the manifold witness, the manifold wisdom of God. Uh, The church, by definition, is a grace display in the midst of wild variety. And so we looked at this Dallas Willard quote, which uh, this happens every now and again. I get corrected on things. So I want to look at this quote. Uh, we, we talked about grace is not opposed to effort, but to earning. Earning is an attitude. Effort is an action. Grace is what we live by, and the human system won't work without it. The saint uses grace like a 747 jet burns gas on takeoff. Found out the first half of that quote is, in fact, true. The back half isn't. I I received this in a text this week. The saint uses grace like a 747 jet burns gas on takeoff, but also 747s do not require gas in takeoff. (laughs) 
The 747 is powered by four high bypass ratio turbofan engines. Initially, the Pratt and the Whitney JT9D or the General Electric CF645, but the newer models feature the GE Gen X 2B67, which is a bloody beautiful designed dual rotor axle flow engine also found in the 787, all of which require jet fuel, specifically Jet A or Jet A1, which is more similar to a kerosene in order to provide ignition to the hot section of the engine. So now that that's clarified, um, <laughs> I want to move on. So given this, given this background of grace and that it's uh, and frankly, I haven't noticed this in Ephesians before. This is all new to me. How big a deal Paul makes a grace. Um, so the, lots of light bulbs going on for me uh, as we look in this, this book. But given all this, here's the question. Given grace, is this in fact what the church is known for? For grace, is this the rumor going around? Oh yeah, the church? You mean those strange people who act like the whole reason they exist is to give away unmerited favor? Yeah, I heard about them. Really weird, a whole community that is like focused on unmerited favor, not just for them, but for everyone, especially the people who are different than them. Yeah, I heard about them. The comedian Kathy Ladman expresses a common view. All religions are the same. Religion is basically guilt with different holidays. <laughs> and Philip Yancey in his book, Vanishing Grace, uh, tackles this question. Is grace the thing church is famous for? It's Paul's saying that's what it's all about. But is that the rumor? Yancey writes, Jesus came from the Father full of grace and truth wrote John in the preface to his gospel. The church has worked tirelessly on the truth part of that formula. Witness the church councils, creeds, volumes of theology, and denominational splits over minor points of doctrine. I yearn for the church to compete just as hard in conveying what Paul calls the incomparable riches of God's grace. Often it seems we're perceived more as guilt dispensers than as grace dispensers. So, I'm not taking pot shots at the church, and I'm not specifically speaking to any one of you, uh, but if this is true, or mostly true, that the church is more famous for being a guilt-dispensing community than a grace-dispensing community, why is this the case? And I don't think it's for a lack of Bible teaching, uh, or it's a lack of awareness of what grace is. I don't think it's even a lack of uh, trying or desiring to be a grace-dispensing people. I don't think it's any of those things. I think something else is going on, something that's undercutting and filtering that dis dispensing. So what is it? I think that's what uh, our text is about this morning. So let's have a, a short prayer, and we'll dive in. Thank you for grace which is always better and always more than we're giving uh, you credit for. Would you uh, expand our paradigms? Would you encourage new practice? Would you help us to risk saying yes to grace? In Jesus' name. 
So I want to read this passage. Uh, let's, let's hear these. I'm excited for these words once again to sound uh, here and to see what will happen. This is Ephesians 2.11. Therefore, if you want to join me, uh, I believe that's the correct page number. Uh, let's, let's look at this together. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. And in him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple to the Lord. And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So our text notes, and you maybe noticed uh, two kinds of people. Gentiles and Jews, and there's some very strange name-calling going on, the circumcision and the uncircumcision, which, uh, well, I'll just leave that as an idea if you're looking for a new gang name. Um, And to the graphic designer who's going to create the patch for your leather jacket. But um, what's going on here actually is a racial slur. It's a racial slur. First uh, century Christian communities were formed in the midst of very visceral polarities, not unlike our own. And the first century organized itself according to hatreds. So when a Jew called a Gentile uncircumcised, they spat it. This name is filled with profound contempt. And if a Jewish person married a Gentile, the Gentile parents would often hold a symbolic a funeral service for their child. They're dead to me. So Gentiles regarded Jews as subhuman and vice versa. So it's important to know that this is the context of the words we just heard. Uh, relationships marked by animosity, disgust, uh, deep division. The uncircumcision and the circumcision. Again, strange for our ears to hear those kind of divides. But, and, well, and also strange to kind of base a group off of that. But isn't this how it always is? Is this not how it works? How groups get formed off of things like your skin color, 
Here at circumcision, but, or there at circumcision, but here it could be things as small as your accent or where you're born or your gender or your education or your politics. Let's take a minute here and just together collectively name what are the divides. You may not be feeling the divide uh, that viscerally this morning of the the circumcision versus the uncircumcision. What are the divides uh, that uh, we know currently? Let's just shout them out. Age, Age, young and old. There's a divide. Gender. Gender. Wealth. Wealth, yeah. Rich, poor. Addiction. Sorry? Race. Race. Education. Education. Politics. Politics. Income. Income, yeah. Spirituality. Spirituality. Religion. Stars on bellies. Stars on bellies. You want to say more? Well, stars on oh, I see what you're doing there. Yeah, okay. Lots of divides. We're watching a big divide with our neighbors to the south, Democrat, Republic, re- Republican, progressive, conservative, Christian, atheist, gay, straight. I mean, we could keep going of all the kinds of divides we know. Uh, Michel Foucault, postmodern theorist, he says, usually the way people form an identity is this, we find an identity factor that makes us feel good about ourselves and we get a sense of self-worth by despising people who don't have that. And so he says, we create and bolster a self through exclusion of the other. So I want to pause here. We're looking at a a hostile relationship between Jew and Gentile. um, And I want to pause here and just ask, how does that kind of hostility get built? Okay, we're going to just step out here for a moment, look at three things. Victimization, antagonism, and polarization. Victimization, you likely know how this works. It usually starts with an experience of getting hurt or maybe even harmed. Those aren't always the same things. Maybe it starts with an injury by a particular person, but over time that particular person starts to represent a people group, a whole bunch of people that look and act and may or may not be like that person that hurt you, doesn't really matter. They represent the source of your injury, your wound, your pain. Hurt uh, is super isolating. That's one of the most isolating things to experience. And because it's so, well, painful on its own, but then isolating, uh, I want to get other people in to share my hurt. And I can do that through gossip. Um, I can do that through gossip slash prayer requests. Um, I can do that through... uh, well, all, all kind of identity politics and virtue signaling online. i let you know my tribe. Uh, but what I really want is I want to get other people to help me out with, uh, with this project. Spencer, you're a city planner. <laughs> help me out here. Michelle, can you 
join in, join in. This is great stuff here because um, hey, I just met you online. We can even do this virtually. Come. Okay, it's great. So I get other people in, I, I get people with a commonality of experience, and what happens is uh, community forms around an I- injury. And so I can bolster the sense of self through exclusion of the other. And the interesting thing is when harm is involved, like actual real pain, then the exclusion is warranted. You better believe it's warranted. This is eye for an eye. And my salvation, my healing, my safety totally depend on making them pay. And that is justice. That they'll at least have at least the same amount of pain that I've received from them, I will give back. And victimization then is a way to deal with hurt. It's a way to not be so lonely. And the trade-off, of course, is being victimized or uh, defining myself as abused means I always require an abuser. The trade-off is, yeah, I'm less lonely, but ironically, the person who has hurt me or the group has hurt me is still with me. And by revisiting the harm over and over, it reinforces the hostility over and over. And this leads to antagonism. It creates a community, a group that's got an ideological position against and hopefully over the other. And the negative energy, the fight, the anger... The push to win keeps the two identities going. Uh, I saw this really clearly with my dog. I've been wanting to find a way to bring my dog into a sermon (laughs) while not abusing the the preaching platform. But uh, my dog is a genius. And um, one of the great joys of my life is playing fetch. I always wanted to get one of those chuckets. You don't have to touch the slimy ball. You throw it. Got one of those. I love playing fetch. Love watching her be athletic. Um, <laughs> and, and so it's, it's a, it seems so simple, but there is something very bonding about this uh, reciprocity. I throw the ball, you get it, you bring it back, and, and on we go, and I throw as far as I can in different places. Uh, it's, it's a simple joy. Uh, because my dog's a genius, she doesn't always want to play the game, and so it does this thing of like, I will come pretend to drop the ball and move on. And I've learned that if I ignore that, and I just wait, 
she'll eventually bring the ball back. If you don't drop the ball, we can't, I can't throw it, so I'll just wait you out. So a couple months back, we were at a park, and I was watching my brother-in-law do the game, throw the ball. He didn't know how to uh, really work the, the dog, and so she came and looked at him holding the ball, and so he thought, well, I better take the ball. And as soon as he goes to get the ball, the game has changed from fetch to keep away. And so she's like this. You, know, you want some of this? And he gets the, goes to get the ball, and she pulls back farther. And he goes further, and she really pulls in. And I, I'm watching him across the field getting really ticked off. And so he's lifting the dog off the ground by the ball, and she is not letting go. Puts her down, and, and then kind of goes like this, and it's fully on. It's now Chase. And I'm just watching the fool. <laughs> chase her, trying to get the ball. And the thing is, he's blind to the antagonism. He doesn't see that in his helpfulness, in his rightness, he's actually contributing to the game. And he's fallen into a game he is not intending, nor does he want to be in. But he's fueling it, and he's continuing it uh, to keep going. This is how antagonisms work, and, and we're usually blind to them most when we think we're right most. I, I fall into antagonisms all the time. There are many antagonisms of living in a family. Conflict, and I'll walk into, the, I'll walk into a room. Who's yelling in here? No yelling! Everyone be calm! Not seeing that I'm, I am changing the tone, I'm increasing the, the antagonism and the game. And most of parenting I, I'm learning is just being a non-reactive presence. So if I can do that, oh. So that's how, how antagonisms work and how we often get pulled into. And then this, of course, then leads to polarization, entrenchment. Unable then to, I actually can't see you. I've, I, I, I'm alone, I'm cut off, I'm safe from everything different than me and my views and my experiences. And everyone in here keeps reinforcing that identity that I'm right, that I'm right to be victimized and that I'm safe and that there's big reason to be afraid. And so now here I've got an identity plus a group plus a wall. And a purpose to defend this wall, to organize around it, to occasionally come online and viscerally criticize people. Because when you viscerally criticize people, that often convinces them to join you. No, it never does. <laughs> but that's what I'm going to come and do. Opinions. Mm-mm. Over here. Waiting for you to join. There's all kinds of walls. Right? Of course there's walls. There's U.S. and Mexico, famous. There's other walls, like the distance between Ontario and B.C., which is the reason you left home to build a wall between you and your family of origin. There's all kinds of walls. 
I think I've told you before, one of my, this is a marriage wall. When Amy points out something that I've done that is wrong and my pride is offended, I go to bed with the wall. Got the shoulder up a little higher with my back to her, thinking, well, I'll punish her by withholding connection and intimacy. I'm not going to raise any hands of those of you who may practice the wall, um, but eventually what happens is I get softened by her kindness and her pursuit and her confrontation, just saying, okay, when's, when's that thing coming down? All right. All kinds of walls. <laughs> and this... I think is why this text keeps speaking is because this is us, a deeply divided people who love walls. I was reading uh, for the last couple months a woman named Sarah Shulman. Really intrigued by her. She's got a book called Conflict is Not Abuse. And uh, I'm intrigued because it's a very interesting critique of the left from a progressive So Sarah uh, is an LGBTQ intellectual artist who grew up fighting for gay rights. Uh, So she's been on the end, uh, the receiving end of quite a bit of marginalization, has been a minority voice, and she's addressing her tribe. And she's saying this, she's addressing a culture of scapegoating, shunning, wall building that is rooted in an inability to handle difference. And she says, this is how racial, religious, national groups bond through their refusal to change their self-concept, which means maybe to move on from being victimized. And, and she says some really uh, startling things. I was talking to the owner of Pulp Fiction Books, who uh, just had Sarah over for a book reading. He said it got heated. Uh, he said, people yelling in a bookstore. This is controversial stuff. This is what she says. She says, supremacy behavior and traumatized behavior often resemble each other in their intolerance of the other. And she's saying, look, to her community, look, there's a trajectory here. There's a history to that trajectory of the oppressed over time becoming the oppressor. When the game is about pointing out and finding oppression everywhere, This is what Foucault calls micropowers of oppression. When you're looking under every rock for oppression, it's a game of power. Speaking truth to power, yes. Taking the power back, okay. But what do you do when you get power? Specifically, if you get power over the people who had power over you, what do you do? And so Sarah says this, the lack of recognition that the past is not the present, leads to the newly acquired power to punish rather than to the self-transformation necessary to resolve conflict and produce justice. What she's saying is the victimized group, if with a victim mentality, is entitled to dehumanize the other. Cruelty, there's ample reason for cruelty. And, and if victimization is the foundation, then whatever means necessary. Instead, she calls for what she, she names authentic relationships of depth versus bonding by bullying. 
and she says that we need to find that finding understanding is more important than determining the victim. So what she's pointing out here is as old as Cain and Abel. And it's very controversial because it's costly. Victimization, antagonism, and polarization. So how do we get out of this? This feels like I don't know if the air is going out of the room or if you're just not liking what I'm telling you, but the vibe is getting weird, folks. Um, Let's continue. Let's get to Scripture. Verse 14. He himself, he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations, Jesus has done something, Paul is announcing, to and for this particular group of people, to this particular divide and all other divides. Because we build all divides with the same kind of materials, victimization, antagonism, and polarization. What has he done? He's made the two groups one. He's destroyed the barrier. He's pulled out the bulldozer to the whole project. How did he do this? Well, his life. I mean, if, if you don't like this notion of breaking up polarization, blame Jesus. This was his whole thing. He, in the midst of a very polarized religious and political culture, Jesus sits with progressives and conservatives and picks both to be part of his, his disciples. Right? He's got the Jameses and the Johns, the social justice warriors who are zealous to see God's kingdom restored, jealous, uh, justice rendered to the marginalized, impoverished, oppressed, occupied people. He's got those people. And he's got Matthew who, who represents, you know, a tax collector who's cozied up to the empire like a neocon who might consider like this, what is that guy doing here? Jesus gathers this first core of disciples and there's intentional disruption to the labels and to the poles. And none of it would work unless Jesus is at the center holding that tension. There's no way James and John are friends with Matthew. They'd all naturally slide into wall-building projects. But for Jesus... So we see that in his example, we see that in his teaching, the Sermon on the Mount most clearly, which in the coming months we're going to look at together, and we see that in his cross. So why did he do this? Verse 15, setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations, his purpose, his purpose was to create himself one new humanity out of the two, making peace. So again, we'll be clear on whatever you think of Jesus or the church or religion. Let's be clear. His purpose is not to reinforce us and them categories, not to pour fuel on the micro powers of oppression, not to create insider clubs, not not even to try and get the power back. His purpose is to keep the reconciliation going. Chapter 2, we're reminded, you are the reconciled beloved of God. You were God's enemy. You, you did not care about God. Rebellious 
and God took the first step towards you, you are the reconciled beloved of God. Keep the reconciliation going. His purpose, let's be clear, and just to make it super clear by just quoting the Bible. (laughs) His purpose was to create a new humanity to reconcile them to God and to one another and to, here's the Bible, to put to death the hostility. Dead, done, over, Jesus killed it. Okay, petty gossip, game over. Identity politics, game over. Self-righteous churches that make the whole thing about this game over. Power imbalances, game over. The, micro, the little game of finding oppression everywhere that feeds the patriarchy and feminism, game over. Every war, game over. Game over, put to death. We could not get out of it. We couldn't make it stop. He had to do something. Game over. He shuts the whole project down. He says, in fact, no. No more scapegoating. No more the violence of labeling and exclusion. Game over. And he takes that violence on the cross. He absorbs it and exposes it and drains it. He is the ultimate victim. We talk about being mistreated, abused, and oppressed, but he does not remain victimized. He, of all people, could indulge like, fairly in some antagonism of being against, but instead, he dies for those who crucified him, and while they're doing it, he forgives them. If anyone was entitled some, a little bit of antagonism, he says, uh-uh, I'm not doing the against thing, I'm doing the for thing. And he puts to death the polarization. Again, he could remain in it. But he crosses the divide, he moves towards those he is most unlike. People like me. He moves towards because he does not treat us as our sins deserve. Because his lens, the way he sees, is, is according to grace. He puts to death the hostility. Game over. Done. The wall comes down. Anyone want to break the wall? Who wants to break it? You want to break it? Okay, Elijah, come and break it. Go that way, though. Okay? That way. Yeah, however you want to do it. No, me too. Good job. good that's very good so what happens what happens when, when, yeah thank you Patty oh boy she whiz that's when you have your counselors in the congregation I guess uh, okay Well, that was not the point of the boxes. Let's carry on. So what happens, very obviously, what happens when the wall comes down? I don't know if, what's that? Um, Yes, a mess. What else? Why vulnerable? Yeah. Nelson, are you here? 
What were you saying this morning about why it's vulnerable? I like that. Yeah. Yeah. And you're seen. And you can see. Outsiders become insiders. Outsiders, bec- outsiders become insiders and it's painful. Confusing. Yeah. Yeah, what game are we playing now? Yes. Totally. If the whole thing was about identity, then who am I? Who are we? And your friends might fill you up. Oh, yeah. So then you're, you are really alone because you were there and Oh, that's good. That, Yeah. Oh, yeah, so if the person you are blaming, they still have their wall up, but you're taking yours down. Yeah, it's scary. Amy said, you may be in community with people who still are about the wall. Because how do you maintain that kind of community? Is that kind of what you said? Yeah. (laughs) Talk to her afterwards, Paul. It's always best just to hear from her directly. Really, obviously, if you've done a reno before, it's fun knocking walls down. You make sure it's not load-bearing, but <laughs> it's fun to knock them down because what happens is there's more space. There's more space. So we, there's a movement from hostile space to open space. And let's hear this. This isn't merely tolerance. It's something else. This is different than that. In Christ, a new people are coming together to live out of His fullness, His grace, His abundance, His forgiveness, His peace. We're not making it up. We're borrowing it. We're receiving it by grace. His reconciling work. We live out of that. And we live so out of as a sign of what He's doing in the world. He's creating a new humanity. It's a witness to what God is doing, that he's drawing in all people to himself. It's a new sociality of peace, not violence, fullness, not lack, reconciliation, not antagonism, forgiveness, not revenge, healing, not destruction. This is what life looks when Jesus is president, when he's boss, when he's Lord, when he's leading. So, if I am still in the wall-building game, this, this text is, is grace and judgment. Game over. If you are still into the wall-defending game, game over. If you're still set on nursing injuries behind the wall and gathering people to your side, insisting and planning for some sort of power play, game over. If the church insists on building walls, game over. Now, that doesn't mean that God's going to do away with the church. But remember Jesus, the the temple, that was Israel's pride and joy, that our identity marker. What happened to the, the temple in 70 AD? Done. 
God will keep finding ways to gather people around his gospel, not around religiously sanctioned walls. So, consequently, Bible, consequently, I love how he just keeps moving. Like, this is, this is a lot to take in, Paul. But uh, he's not coming up for air. He says, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but included as fellow citizens, members of the house, God's house of misfits and orphans and rejects and former enemies. And Jesus is the chief cornerstone. He's making the thing hold together. And in this place, God is making something new. Let's hear this. It is not, the project is not wall building. And the project is not only wall dismantling. The, the work Jesus is about is not just dismantling and deconstruction, but reconstruction. Something new is being built up. This is the thing that is really hard for us who have deconstruction in our veins, who are post-church, who, who want to tear it all down. This is hard for us. Jesus is rebuilding something and he's using the very same people who are enemies to be co-creators. This is the new thing. It's going to be made up of Jew and Gentile and women and men and gay and straight and rich and poor and young and old and progressive and conservative. These are the building materials. The people are the building materials. People who nowhere else go together, but they go together here because of Christ. And they're learning to be formed and to fit in with one another, to bear the weight of one another, to belong to one another. And it's all holding together because of Jesus. And as amazing as this would be, that people who don't have a home find a home, and where people who don't belong now belong, as amazing as that would be, that's not where Paul ends. Verse 21, in him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple. In the Lord. And in Him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. This is where God wants to be. This is the whole point of the reconstruction that God is going to put His presence in the midst of a reconciled community. I mean, you may have been to Europe or Quebec and seen some of the most stunning church architecture we have on the planet. But have you seen the staggering glory of the living architecture of reconciled enemies? A new humanity of people that never go together but are going together here? Apparently, according to God, God isn't looking for more marble or stained glass or vaulted ceilings. As beautiful as those materials may be, the materials he's interested in is for the diverse, wild, ragtag, reconciled people of God in new relationship where none of it makes sense apart from Christ. Can I get a witness? That's that's good news. And so the movement is from hostile space to open space to sacred space. And our first question is, is grace what the church is famous for? And then we said, well, what undercuts it or what filters it? Well, I think it's when it forgets. It's where our text starts, verse 11. Therefore, remember that. 
remember that you are the reconciled beloved. Remember that you were far and you've been brought near. Remember that, I mean, unless you're Jewish here, we're all Gentiles. We're all outsiders. Right? Remember this. Remember how God has been towards you. Why? Because reconciled people reconcile people. And forgiven people forgive people. And welcomed people welcome people. And included people include people. And accepted people accept people. Graced people grace people. And you, you get the idea. So the announcement is this is not a work of wall building or defending. And when I'm stuck in hostile space, the good news is that there's salvation. There is an open space. And when I'm stuck in hostile space, no matter what religious verbiage I put on it, it's hostile and it's meant to be dismantled. So the invitation is to join Jesus in open space where we are going to need grace. You're right, Bree, this is messy. We're going to need so much grace. His grace for us to then be converted to, to be grace for one another so that some reconstruction will happen. We go to new space. We need grace. It takes zero grace to relate to someone who looks, thinks, and acts just like me. It doesn't take much grace. I've also found, again, being a married man, it would take zero grace to be married to myself. <laughs> but I'm not. I'm married to someone who is not me, who does not value the same things as me, who goes about cleaning the kitchen in different ways than me. Is difference. I need grace. The, the eyes of grace, not just to see difference and diversity as something to be tolerated, but something to be championed. And as a first fruit that, oh, I think we're on to something. Manifold wit, wisdom of God is being put on display here. It takes zero grace to be a church that uh, just really wants to be about this old project. So to practice the way of Jesus really comes down to this. Let's look at this image here. This is how the walls come down. I think this is what Sarah Schulman is arguing for in different words. And it gets so uncomfortable and so personal. Because, of course, to practice the way of Jesus means to love your enemy. Not enemies in general. Your, your, my enemy. So I think the invitation is this morning to address the walls by grace. There may be a wall between you and God, a wall that you keep insisting on. And today, by grace, may that wall come down. What can separate us from the love of God, Paul says? Point nothing. Nothing. There's a wall between God and your pain. You've been doing your own pain management behind the wall. And maybe today is a lot to allow some grace to spill over the banks into that wound. So the wall between you and God, 
or the wall between you and someone, maybe in this community, maybe not. But now would be a good time to address that wall, to remind yourself that Jesus has done something about it. He's making the two one. He's not dismantling distinctions between things, but divides, right? It's not about merging or obliterating stuff. Divides between you and a people group, maybe. So as we come, the invitation is, if you want, you can come and kick a box. Or maybe you want to just dismantle a box as a way to say, I want the wall to come down. And if you want, you can stand on it and flatten it out. Second, and the, prior, the primary invitation is to the table. If there is not grace in you this morning, come to the table to receive it. Jesus is rich with it, and he gives it free. The table is where God dispenses grace so that we can be a people that dispenses grace into the world. So you're invited to the table to receive grace and uh, to address a wall this morning. So as we come, let's remember why we come. We'll go to the words.